0: We want to respond to crises, but we don't want to just be like, hey, yeah, we're just going to green light the money. You know, DeSantis is sitting there with Biden saying, yeah, we don't really need to put red tape around this money. I'm like, I'm sorry, that's our money. And the way we spend this money is really important. We're talking about billions of dollars down the line, money that has been incentivizing all the wrong things. So like in a weird way, this bipartisanship to me is actually pretty alarming in certain ways. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta.
1: And I'm Ricky Schlot.
0: Well, Ricky, you had quite the adventure on the way to work today. Uh, tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, I I wasn't feeling great when I left. My stomach was a little off. And I said, no, I'm gonna go be a responsible employee and be there on time and show up. And I threw up on Sixth Avenue, which is a rite of passage as a New Yorker, I suppose. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't add to the vomit piles that are on the sidewalk. All the time, at least once, then you're not really a New Yorker. So, Whoa, I've, I've been inaugurated. Oh yeah, it was really embarrassing, and then I like I I freaked out, and then I came home and I was on the phone with my mom, um, kind of bitching and moaning about it. And my neighbor overheard me and came over and brought me tums, which was very sweet. Wow! So I'm 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 ready to go. I'm all tumsed up, but we're record- recording remotely to keep me at arm's yeah. length. Wow. Well,
0: thanks for doing this. Obviously, if you have to drop off at any point, I'll just uh, Stephen A. Smith this from now, from here forward, and just (laughs) talk on my own. Well, it's Uh, good
1: practice because we're going to be remote on Thursday as well because you're traveling, right?
0: Yes, going up to the Canadian border for a couple of days, and then I'm going to see the Bills take on the Steelers at Orchard Park, New York, which should be pretty Mm. nice. I think we're favored by like 100 points in that game, so that should be pretty nice.
1: Nice little slam dunk.
0: Yes, slam dunk, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We have uh, a fun lineup today. We're going to talk about a perceived crisis in the fake meat market. Uh, We have a uh, real crisis in the housing market, potentially, and then we're going to talk about tipping and some, trends, some worrisome trends uh, in the culture of tipping. But let's start with tragedy unfolding in the South. Uh, you know We are still surveying the devastation from this hurricane. Ricky, what do we know as of today?
1: Yeah, this is um, set to be one of the deadliest storms ever to hit Florida. Um, the latest tolls show that around 87 people have died at least. Um, and it could be up there with one of the costliest storms ever. Um, projections vary at the moment, but one from Core Logic put it between 28 and 47 billion dollars. It's, it's absolutely devastating. It's going to take years to rebuild where Florida does rebuild. Many people won't return. Um, and Marco Rubio described it as a character altering event. So it's it's truly devastating and something we haven't seen in a while.
0: right. And I think you know, we're going to talk about the po- various policies that are wrapped up in hurricane response, but I think it is important to note that anybody who's listening, whether you've got family members or you yourself have been in the path of this hurricane, you know, we're sending out thoughts and prayers to you and, you know, hopefully you were able to get out in time and if you mm-hmm. weren't, uh, hopefully you were able to get the support that you needed. And so everything we're about to say, we're going to debate some, you know, policies around, you know, how we get into these positions, what do we do about it, isn't to in any way discount the suffering that's going on out there. Uh, But I think, you know, I'll start with just my personal experience with these hurricanes. You know, I grew up in Staten Island that was hit really hard in Sandy and my dad lived for over a decade in the Gulf Shores, Alabama, which was hit by like five hurricanes while he was there. He, you know, he had properties, you know, completely flooded and have to be rebuilt. He lost his medical practice for various parts due to flooding and had to reopen. Like I've I've seen a lot of this kind of stuff. and, And what I'm about to say, I think is colored in part by that experience. And I think when we're reading about the hurricane response, it seems like there's always this moment when there's a flood of aid. And I've often wondered as somebody who spent my summers in Gulf Shores, and I used to watch this happen every couple of years, one hurricane after another, why do we keep building in places that are hard hit? And there's been a lot of good writing lately just about some of the trends on the coasts and so there was this article in the atlantic called florida's fatal attraction by this woman named diane roberts where she points out that you know there's been rapid development in florida uh you know which is what we've been talking about with this hurricane 50 percent of its wetlands have been destroyed since 1845 there's a washington post article by anna phillips that uh, looks at census data from 1970 to 2020 that shows that in Cape Coral, Fort Myers area, it has grown by 62.3 percent, and that Florida as a whole has grown 2.7 million people uh, in the period of 2010 to 2020, just in that 10 years. And when you put that all together uh, with some of the trends in the insurance markets, the bond markets, the mortgage markets, which we'll get into, we're having more and more people move to the coasts. Their houses are getting destroyed at a pretty rapid clip. And a combination of the federal government and others are stepping in to rebuild these houses, and and we continue to do it every couple of years. And I'm wondering right now whether this is a good use of everybody's resources and whether we should be encouraging or discouraging people from go to these coasts.
1: Well, I think there's definitely um, huge potential for the free market to kind of take this experience in and potentially respond with lower valuations of houses on the coast. Um, We knew ahead of Ian even hitting that there were 7.2 million homes that were estimated to be at risk. And in the long term, looking down to 2030, Florida risks losing $10 billion in market valuation on these coastal homes by 2060, $75 billion. There are 140,000 plus properties that are at risk of dropping their value just based on the fact that people through these lived and learned experiences are seeing that this is a risky thing that if you want to live somewhere like that, it requires either taking on the potential burden of losing your home or taking on the burden of huge insurance premiums. Um, Floridians are paying an average of $4,200 premium, which is triple the national average. They they take out 9% of the insurance claims in the nation. And they've been seeing a decline in federal flood insurance leading up to this storm. They've had insurance companies that have gone insolvent over the past year. Others have been jacking up premiums. So the insurance world definitely needs to scramble to um, kind of reset and reorient based on this clear risk that that living on a coastal area brings and i think that also consumers and, and homeowners i mean i don't think that's something that they necessarily want and if you know that you're in a flood zone the last thing you want is to find yourself in this sort of situation and if you want to be in a beautiful coastal area there are places that are At greater risk, there are places that are safer bets. And I think that, um, you know, people, homeowners, that's a huge decision and people are wise. And hopefully going forward, we we will kind of acclimate to this reality.
0: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things in this market that make it not so free. And I think about where my dad used to live, right? In Gulf Mm -hmm. Shores, Alabama and Orange Beach. There's this island out there called Dauphine Island, right? And Yale Environment 360 did a piece a couple years ago where they just talk about the dynamics at play there, which this is an island that has no business having any homes on it, yet it is among the most expensive real estate in the area. Probably, I think, the most expensive patch of land in all of Alabama. And the cycle is, they get hit, they plead for disaster aid from the federal government, they file claims, they get federal flood insurance, uh, then they rebuild using taxpayer dollars Through a program, by the way, flood insurance, which is largely insolvent right now, and they did this year after year. I saw this. They did it with Frederick, Georges, Ivan, Katrina, Nate, and they just keep receiving federal dollars, and this one study estimates that this one island – received $100 million in federal aid, which works out to $170,000 for each of the island's 1,200 residents. And this is a super affluent area. There's just no reason why anybody needs to be there. And I think this gets at some of the things that make this not a free market and where the government could take a step back, in my opinion. I think, number one, we should really evaluate federal flood, flood insurance and start to say to people ahead of time, look... Federal flood insurance is going to just stop incentivizing people to build in certain areas that are high risk. Two is we've got this trend where a lot of these companies are giving these mortgages still These federal mortgage companies, but what they're doing is they're turning around and securitizing the mortgages. Which, if that sounds familiar, this is kind of an echo of what's happened in two thousand eight.
1: Can you explain what these mortgage-backed securities are for people who, like me, are kind of starting from scratch here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this was a big part of the two thousand eight financial crisis. If you've ever read The Big Short or watched the movie The Big Short or uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin's Too Big to Fail, these. Securitization of mortgages was at the heart of the 2008 financial crisis. Which essentially it means that you have companies giving out mortgages to people who don't deserve them, and then they package them up and sell them. Uh, and that was a big ticking time bomb in the financial crisis back then. Because what wound up happening is they're selling these mortgages in packages. The people who are purchasing them. Weren't really evaluating the risk, so these companies were offloading these risks. People were buying the the risk, and that risk was a uh, was a you know basically exploded as the financial crisis exploded. And there's a paper by UCLA Anderson by this guy named William Yu, which basically says the same exact thing is happening right now when it comes to securitization of uh, coastal properties. And so what he says is lenders. Are underwriting these loans uh, because they have every incentive to do it. Because what Mm -hmm. they are able to do is turn around and sell these loans to Fannie and Freddie, which, you know, who's backing Fannie and Freddie and guaranteeing them? Us, the taxpayers, again. So not only are we subsidizing this development through national flood insurance, but we're underwriting. We're, we're guaranteeing these loans through Fannie and Freddie, which is nearly the identical thing that was happening in 2008. So I'm like, look, if you want to build on the coast on your own money, fine. We shouldn't be insuring it as a federal government. We shouldn't be guaranteeing loans in extremely risky places. You know, That's where I start. I have a couple other ideas about how we can fix this situation, but I think that's a good starting point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that for all the wasteful spending that the federal government is doing right now, I'm not upset that Americans who are in a devastating situation are getting help right now in this tragedy. I think this is a wake-up call that we need to reform going forward. And I want to be as as prudent and responsible with those federal dollars as possible. And I think that, you know, tying tying federal funding and tying federal aid to um, responsible local policies, and whether that's requiring homeowners to have flood insurance, whether that's having adequate building codes, or, or creating dams and floodgates, or um, even mangrove forests, or you know, there's a variety of things that could incentivize local governments to be more responsible, so that they are entitled to that aid if a tragedy does strike. And I'm I'm all for those sort of reforms. And I think that also local municipalities will have to react that way just in order to get people to come back to their zip codes in Florida right now. I mean, there's some areas that are completely wiped out. Yep. So I would say that tying it, tying federal funds to responsible leadership is something that I'm in favor of going forward. But right now I'm not upset that people who are like, have nothing to do with this system are are getting some help.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, I don't think we should pull the rug out from people right now, but I think moving forward, like it's time, right? It is is time time. for us to take a look at this. And I think there's this, you know, when we talk about political eclectics, right? We like to see coalitions of people come together that are unlikely allies. And there's this coalition in Washington called smartersafer.org. And it's made up of environmentalists, libertarians and and budget watchdogs. Mm -hmm. And they come together in a century, like it is time to reform the system. And there's this guy uh, from the R Street Institute this conservative institute, uh, this guy Eli Lair, who said, we simply can't go on subsidizing enormous numbers of people to live in areas that are prone to huge natural disasters. And the numbers here are pretty staggering. So there's this this term called chronic inundation, which uh, basically means that if you live in an area that has tidal flooding covering 10% of a community 26 times a year. And this paper um, by USC uh, or UCLA, it estimates that by 2100, 490 communities or 40% of oceanfront communities on the East and Gulf coasts are going to be subject to chronic inundation. And this is what he basically says is the next crisis facing our country. And he says, this is going to play out in the next few decades. It's not going to happen in 2100. It's going to happen between now and then. And you may be like, oh, these are environmental catastrophists, etc." But you know this. This paper goes through and says, "Well, if you think it's just the environmental, like quote unquote, alarmists who are saying this, look at the bond market, where uh, municipal bond yields are way higher in coastal areas, and their underwriting fees are higher. Look at credit spreads; they're way wider in coastal areas. You look at the rates at which uh, these companies are securitizing mortgages; it's way higher and trending higher." In these coastal areas. So the market itself is reacting to this. And this tells me that this is a real crisis. Now, um, there's one last thing I'll just add that I think we can do here, which is buyouts, right? In the 1990s, for example, in the Mississippi flood plain on the Mississippi River, uh, they bought out some towns and moved people. Uh, And this happened in Texas after Hurricane Ike, I think that we should start moving ahead now to say, all right, we know we're going to spend this money anyway. Like a lot of places are going to get devastated. We're going to spend it like in Dauphin Island. We're going to rebuild them. Let's start offering people money now to permanently move to get them out of these places. I'm not holding my breath on that, but I think that might be some of the most responsible policy we can implement here.
1: That feels like a little bit of governmental overreach to me. but But, Well, let me um, ask you then. But I think that another. Well, let me just
0: ask you if it's overreach, then like do you then should we stop? Paying Dauphine Island to keep rebuilding, then? Because it's just, it's, it's, Yeah, to me I think it's we should cheaper, tie it you know? to
1: responsible policies on a local level. I, I don't love the idea of the federal government swooping in and saying you can't take the risk because I think if you're being responsible as a homeowner and you're paying the insurance premiums and you have a way out, if, if worse comes to worse, then that's your right to be on a coast. Um, I might not make that choice myself, but if, if you can, if you can meet, regulations and you can meet a, a level of of certainty that is tied to federal funds i don't i mean maybe as an option but i anything like the government swooping in and saying we're gonna just give you money and repo your house i don't love but you know that's just me but i also think that the, another important aspect of this hurricane is the political implications here Um, Because now we see DeSantis making a very quick pivot from his migrant flights and kind of culture war um, flashes in the pan to being the in-charge governor who is dealing with a crisis, who is working with President Biden, and he's gotten some backlash for thanking FEMA for crediting Biden, and Biden has been uh, criticized over his collaboration with DeSantis, who he has been publicly critical of, but according to the president...
0: It's totally irrelevant, but I'll answer it, okay? I, very fine. He complimented me. He thanked me for the immediate response we had. He told me how much he appreciated it, said he was extremely happy with what was going on. This is not about whether or not anything having to do with our disagreements politically.
1: This is about saving people's lives, homes and businesses.
0: The clips here are pretty interesting, you know, with uh, DeSantis and Biden at press conferences being pretty cordial with each other. Yeah, And I think that's great. I think it's uh,
1: really I, I nice wanna... to see right now. I think it's awesome.
0: It's great, but I'm with Bobby Miller from the National Review here, who wrote uh, an article called "The Bar for Competence Just Got Ten Feet Lower." Uh, and he, what he said was, you know, in this post-Trump world—and these are his worlds, what used to be considered a cakewalk for a politician, maintaining composure and avoiding controversy amidst natural disasters, being treated as if it were a height of statesmanship. What was once regarded as routine is now seen as the ultimate test of one's capacity to govern. But doesn't take much to stand at a podium and maintain a modicum of decorum when an emergency u- unfolds. That's where I am. I'm not mad at anybody for getting along. I'm glad it's happening, but I'm not giving out medals for this.
1: I mean, I also think, though, that we're at an unprecedented point in history where we are so divided, where Everyone is shooting shots at everyone all the time and it's just nice to see some bipartisan cooperation and to see people put their disagreements aside. I think it's a good example for the country more broadly and it feels a little reminiscent of the Christie Obama controversy and and issues over whether you should be Thankful and welcoming to the federal government when you're a governor who's in need of help, but I think it's setting a good example. I think it's, I think there's no time more than today where that is just nice to see. And so I feel heartened by it.
0: Yeah, I'm just, to me, it's like the job, right? We pay these people to do their job. Yes, it is the job. They showed up one day to do their job, you know, and I'm like, wow, okay, great. And move on, you know, by the way, like, this is a long term thing, right? So one of the things that I see them doing, they're at this press conference, I hate, I hate to throw cold water on this. But they're basically just agreeing not to scrutinize the money that they're throwing at this issue, which I'm sorry, like, I thought we were, we were alarmed by COVID waste. Like, there, there could be hurricane waste too, right? Like, just we want to respond to crises, but we don't want to just be like, hey, yeah, we're just going to green light the money. You know, DeSantis is sitting there with Biden saying, yeah, we don't, we don't really need to put red tape around this money. I'm like, I'm sorry, that's our money. And like the way we spend this money is really important. We're talking about billions of dollars down the line. And as I described in the last segment, like like money that has been incentivizing all the wrong things. So like in a weird way, like this bipartisanship to me is actually pretty alarming in certain ways.
1: I don't know. I would say for me, even as a libertarian who's suspicious of spending in general, there is a lot of forms of spending that I'm more um upset about than this to be honest i don't
0: think that's the standard right like that's how no i don't think that's that's the standard i'm outraged about funding
1: period I'm, i'm outraged about government spending period but i if i were to be picking and choosing things right now um domestic money going to people who have been devastated at the moment is not what i would be parsing out as my first priority
0: yeah, because that's what, that's what people used to say about COVID spending, right? Well, you know, like there are worse things the government spends on and then it's one thing after another, you know, and I think there's this sort of disaster politics that we have, people have written about this, Naomi Klein, et cetera, where it's like, we take crises and then it's like, all right, we can't have a debate and a discussion about like, okay, is no, like, this proportionate? No, I'm not are saying there should
1: be a right? debate and discussion. I yeah. think there totally should be. I, I don't disagree with that.
0: Yeah, and I guess my point is there isn't one, right? (laughs) Like, it's not like people are having, like, outside of the pages of a couple of, like, publications, you're not seeing a lot of politicians stand up and scrutinize the spending. And what's interesting when you ask me about the politics of DeSantis, he did scrutinize spending when it wasn't his. So when he was in Congress in 2013, he voted against Sandy Relief, specifically saying he didn't want to add to the deficit. And when it became his state, this I find appalling, right? Like when it became his state, he started to scrutinize it, right? And to me, I'm like, all right, look, let's be consistent. So when it's my dad in Orange County, or my mom in Staten Island, We should be playing the same litmus test to that, not changing it depending on whether the politics are good or bad for you. So I guess I'm just not bullish on the politics of this. I don't understand Republican politics the way you or maybe others may like. So I don't know how the Republican base reacts to cooperating with Biden. My sense is like even the most rabidly partisan people will look at it and be like, what else choice did he have? Uh, and I my prediction is like this honeymoon between the two of them won't last very long anyway. So I can't imagine this really being too much of an issue the way the Chris stuff was with Obama Mm -hmm. back in that primary.
1: Well, let's talk about a lighter topic here, Um, fake meat. Beyond meat has been dragged through the coals recently. And um, I think that probably came to the most clear sort of crystallization when their COO bit the nose of another man and proved that you don't need fake meat if you have human flesh. But um, they've been. Wait, yeah.
0: Stop on that one for a second. Uh-huh. Explain that situation. What? He
1: was in a brawl at some a- football a- game, <laughs> and like this is. I feel like this is what got the cultural attention back on fake meat, even though like not a ton has yeah. happened. They've been kind of uh, beyond meat stock has been on the decline from two hundred and thirty four dollars in two thousand nineteen all the way down to fourteen dollars now, and it's been kind of a steady descent. But I think this kind of just got everyone's eyes on on the business, and um, we all kind of went, huh. Like, there were some reports that he bit off portions of his nose. He got arrested. I don't know if, if he <laughs> – I couldn't find out if he actually – Got some flesh in the process, but he he was arrested. The mugshot went everywhere. And now everyone is saying, what's up with fake meat? Which was compounded with a damning report from Deloitte, which um, went through different reasons why, for the first time in 2022, the amount of households that are buying fake meat did not grow. So there seems to be a little bit of a saturation point here. And some cracks are showing. And so the question is, does this company is kind of tumble from the top spell the end of fake meat? Does it just mean that one company is failing? What does the future look like? And so there's been kind of a renewed cultural conversation around that.
0: Yeah, Ricky, this market seems to be a little mystifying. You know, I'm somebody who owns Beyond Meat stock and gotten hosed on it this me year. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin, <laughs> so
1: it's, Beyond Meat. It's so fun. <laughs> it's a
0: tough year. I I'm, I'm holding it even though it feels like it's going to zero. Mm. But uh, but tell me Educate us on what what is this market right now? It it, it as you alluded to, it, it it's it was growing fast, it's slowing down, yeah. from what we could tell. We know there's some private players, so it's harder to get data on them. Like I think Impossible is a private company, mm-hmm. so we don't get as much data on how they're doing. They claim to be doing just fine. Yeah. Uh, I definitely see their products more than I used to, but yeah, t- paint the market picture for us. Like is there is there a market slowdown here?
1: Yeah, well so to kind of back up a little bit in 2019 they when Beyond Meat went public this industry just exploded like it was very much on the cutting edge of fake meat that isn't just like crushed beans that like it kind of feels like the real thing and it had backing from bill gates leonardo dicaprio the former mcdonald's ceo it became a multi-billion dollar industry very quickly it was um taken up in different iterations by kfc mcdonald's taco bell basically every every fast food major fast food chain was trying out some iteration um but we're at a point right now where things have definitely slowed down for a variety of reasons. Um, One being that the product base is pretty crowded. There are tons of new versions and varieties that are popping up everywhere. Um, Supply chain issues that have extended to kind of all major markets, but this is no um, exception to that. Um, And then also the fact that you're comparing it off of double-digit growth. So a slowdown is... Certainly noticeable and worth noting, but it's relative to an explosion. Um, but I would mm. say the biggest thing that's happening here is cost. As of February, it was around three ninety-five for a pound of beef and seven seventy-nine for a pound of Beyond Meat. And so, as we all know, food inflation is the highest that it's been in decades. Um, and the share of Americans who are willing to pay a premium for something like an alternative meat. Is down 9% from 2021 to still 46%, which isn't terrible. But, you know, when you're feeling the crunch, the first thing that, if you're not a strict vegetarian, that you might cut is synthetic meat, which um, seems pretty logical to me.
0: Yeah. And I think like part of, you know, there's just many motivations for becoming a vegetarian or a vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could care about animal cruelty, which you and I are motivated by. You could care about yeah. the health reasons, which I've become more motivated by over time. Uh, and some people just don't like meat. They just don't like the consistency of it. Uh, but, Ricky, I think we're in a bit of a vibes recession, right, With mm-hmm. when it comes to fake meat. And I think part of the issue here, and I think it was cracker barrel, right? Like they, what happened there, yeah. they were going to put— They were going to have fake meat on their menu? They were
1: putting a sausage alternative on their menu, I think, in August. Um, It was actually one of the things we talked about on Bill Maher, which is funny. Um, But it caused a freak out on Facebook and in the social media world, especially Facebook, which it seems to be kind of age correlated that older people are um, a little more (laughs) allergic to the political perceptions of what fake meat might be. But one really great comment from there – Thanks to Cracker Barrel, now my family won't be able to dine there because troves of hippie stoner (laughs) libs will now be invading my favorite chain restaurant and pushing their immoral commie lifestyle on me and my children. So that kind of sums up a little bit of a sense that fake meat might be woke.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and I know we got something. Let's not go to the – I know where we're going to go in this. (laughs) and There is over – like there are caricatures of this, but I want to stop here because you and I, I would say, are unwoke uh, animal rights people, and I would say I don't mm. lecture people on it, other than occasionally on this podcast. I and, absolutely and I have a lecture my podcast. It. It. <laughs> I'm I'm a
1: little shameless. I'm kind of a, in some ways I'm kind of one of the toxic people who's like, but have you watched videos of animal animal slaughter? And so I I'll take a little I'll take a little bit of the hit, but I have to but, say from my conservative do, audience of all the more left sort of things that I have that pop up here and there in my commentary. The only thing that I ever get consistent flack on is this one, and it's it it very much hits a nerve with people, especially with older people. And I think that's because food is just very much something that we grow up with, something that our traditions are linked to, and the idea of a disruption like this for um, potentially political reasons or political motivations on the part of some people um, is something that they kind of- uh, It's just- resistant to, I
0: would say. Yeah, but like this comment is illustrative of the sense that if we just offer it, it's offensive. I'm like, no, I'm not forcing yeah, no, you to I'm, eat it. I'm, I'm, like, that's, a, that's a caricature you
1: know? of the conservative reaction, but there are yeah. also, I have to admit, there are vegans that go too far. There are people who go a little off the deep end One person who falls into that category, in my estimation, is Carol J. Adams, um, who recently spoke at Oxford in a debate and was recently um, put in the Animal Rights Hall of Fame. So she's she's looked at as a, a leader in this space. And this is what she has to offer in terms of why you should not eat meat. The assumption that the best protein comes from corpses is a racist belief. How do you know the animal would have picked you to feed off their corpse? 21st century animal eating requires our complicity in a new colonialism. These events especially affect girls and young women, your hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny. Popular culture is flooded with references to sexy cows, <laughs> sexy pigs, sexy chickens. All right, enough. Sexy enough. fishes. I've had enough. Who all just want
0: to have fun. We, this is, we can move on. Sexy enough cows, of this. So sexy think-
1: pigs, sexy chickens. <laughs> it's literally a bingo card of every single, like, buzzword of, up oh, there's colonialism, and now it's feminism, and now, I mean, it's... Like, I I don't think, I think this is a caricature. This is a (laughs) a caricature, but it's part of, I think these are the loudest voices in the movement and there aren't enough people who are like, this is what gets amplified. And like, for me, it's just, I don't want something to suffer for the meal that's on my plate. It's not about colonialism. And it's unfortunate that these are the voices that get amplified because they kind of sour the whole.
0: The corpse on your plate. Uh, I'm look, I'm okay with
1: the corpse it, it, description. That seems fair to me. I don't know that I'm that I'm on board with, but she loses me with. Yeah everything else.
0: I agree that the race is like if everything's racist, nothing is racist. I feel like we're really just trying to make this as like, let's just let's talk about it for what it is. And I think this gets Mm -hmm. at the vibes issue that we were talking about, right? Like, Like, how does how do we build a movement based on our beliefs? I think there are two ways to do it. I think about this the way I think about immigration, where a lot of my friends on the left, they talk about immigration, they only talk about it as a human rights issue, which in many ways I agree with it, right? I do think there are limits like, right, like there's you have to have limits on how we bring people in this country, how organized we are, et cetera, right? But I do believe there are human rights issues, especially as it relates to asylum cases. But I don't think that's where the messaging should be on immigration. It should be about, hey, economics. We need people to do jobs that we need, whether it's nurses, doctors, people in the service industry, et cetera. And that is the most effective messaging, in my opinion, on immigration. And I think of that when it comes to, to food issues. When it comes to the vegan diets and vegetarian diets, et cetera, I don't think the lecturing is effective on the moral stuff as much as I believe in the morals. I think if you're going to talk about the morals, I think Jonathan Safran 4 is a really good example where he wrote this book called We Are the Weather where he essentially says, look, I'm not telling you to give it all up. Just give up a little bit more, 30%, 20%, skip a meal, et cetera. And he talks about it from an environmental perspective and he talks about it uh at times, although the book is really focused on environmentalism, he talks about it from an animal cruelty perspective. But you could also appeal to people's self interests, right? Like there are people like David Sinclair, who is a Harvard geneticist who wrote Lifespan. He's one of the foremost experts on aging. And when he talks about what are the few things you could do to increase your lifespan, you know, he talks about giving up meat. And let's play a quick clip of this because you know he gets a little technical, but I'll try to do my best to explain what he's talking about here. So what I think people could do is to, if they want to eat meat, go for it, but try to focus on plant-based food more often so that there are periods during the week when there aren't as many leucine, isoleucine, valine molecules floating around in your body so that you have a chance for your mTOR downregulation to recycle proteins. Now, why do you want to recycle proteins? You might say, well, who cares about recycling proteins? Well, Alzheimer's disease is a good example of proteins that get modified and accumulate in your brain. And it happens not just in the brain, but in all tissues. We have these old proteins that linger, cause us to get old, to malfunction, but it's reversible. And it's reversible by fasting. It's reversible also by having low levels of these branched-chain amino acids. Essentially, what I like about this is he's saying, he's using a different frame, than Jonathan Safran four. he's not talking about environmentalism. He's talking about your self-interest. How do you like age better? And his whole book talks about beyond Alzheimer's why this sort of this pathway he's talking about autophagy is really important. Uh, Mm -hmm. And why decreasing your meat intake is important for this. Like, whether he's right or wrong about the science, I think, like, I like the way he says it. Because he's like, don't – I'm not saying give it all up. He's saying give up less. And if we convince four people to eat 25% less meat each, that's as effective as convincing one person to give it up. So, I I kind of like that messaging.
1: I still kind of struggle with the idea that these long-term goals are the thing that is going to motivate people. I think – like the obesity crisis and um, like issues like that kind of demonstrate that people are not as long-term oriented in the way that they think in general. And I think that's reflected yeah. in surveys of vegans and why they decide to become vegans. Um, there was one that came out of Australia that uh, spoke to more than 12,000 people and asked them whether it was for their health, for the environment, or for animals. said health, 9.7% environment, and 68.1% said animals, which is not surprising to me because that is an immediate like moral question of not what's going to happen to you 20 years down the line or what's going to happen to the planet 100 years down the line. It's like, can you confront where your food comes from? And for a lot of people, the answer is yes, and they don't really care. But for a lot of people, that's something that they'd prefer to kind of keep in the back of their minds and away from their plates and away from um, putting it in front of their face. So I think, in my opinion, my estimation, um, the best way to convince people if they're open to it, not forcing it on them, not like the vegans that spot our blood all over themselves and lay down in supermarkets, but, you know, talking about the animal cruelty and the fact that 99% of the meat that we consume in this country comes from a factory farm, which is just fundamentally abusive.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I think it's different populations, different messages. You know, what, what I like about Sinclair is he's able to smuggle the viewpoint onto Rogan where he's appeared because- certain optimizers and huge populations are like, hey, like obsessed with anti-aging, right? So to me, if that just convinces a few percentage points, I'm cool with that, you know?
1: Well, speaking of percentage points, let's move on to the economy and what's going on there because we have more disasters to parse out. Um, Right now, the markets are in pretty dire shape. The Dow was down 19.4% over a year ago. Um, The S&P down 23.3%, NASDAQ 31.7%. My Bitcoin, 58.2%. Um, so <laughs> I think the economy more largely is struggling right now, for sure.
0: Yeah, the numbers are staggering. $9 trillion in stock market losses over the past year, $1.3 trillion in crypto losses. You look at you know everything from inflation to the housing market to the Nord Stream pipeline, which is affecting you know, fuel costs, China, which we've talked about, their major crises from property to COVID, Ukraine, hurricanes, fiscal tightening, it's all coming together. But I think one thing that I think a lot of our listeners have been asking about, a lot of people in my life ask about it, is like, well, what does this mean for the housing market? Mm-hmm. And I think the data here is really interesting. And you know, historically, real estate has been the most important asset class in any country for economic stability. It's in part why China is Struggling so much right now is like they have a bunch of people trying to ascend into property ownership, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of turbulence there, a lot of anger. So in our country, we've been presiding over record increases of property uh, and low interest rates for for most of your life, actually, and like most of you know the re- most of recent memory. But what we found recently is that uh, for the first time in a long time, the median home price in the US decreased in August slightly. I mean, we're not talking about huge drops, but it decreased slightly. And the there are other indicators that tell us that we're hitting a slowdown here. Building permits in August were down fourteen percent from a year ago. Builder confidence was down nine straight months. A report from Zillow shows that new listings slid almost twenty three percent in August from a year earlier. And the share of U.S. homes that were listed thirty days or longer without going under contract increased twelve point five percent in July. So you're seeing a slowdown, Mm -hmm. Uh, Ricky. I know you bought recently Mm -hmm. i kind of bought in the spring how are you feeling about that decision
1: i feel like i had no idea what i was doing but my mom was like i think it'll be smart i think you should do it and now i'm i literally could not (laughs) have done it if i had decided to do that a month later and so i feel um very fortunate to have kind of stumbled into those circumstances but just to put some numbers to like how different monthly mortgages look for people who are paying them right now. This is not my own example. But if you theoretically, just a couple months ago, put a million dollars or bought an apartment for or a home for a million dollars and you put 20% down, in January of 2020, if you had done that, you'd be paying $3,200 a month in, in your mortgage with principal and interest all in. If you do that right now for the same house, the same rough market price value everything's like i mean we have a slight slide but nothing nothing's changed dramatically in terms of of what the house is relative to the properties around it you'd be paying 5200 dollars so 3200 to 5200 dollars wow. for 30 years i mean the difference is is staggering and i think that it's easy and like something that i really learned recently and didn't totally grasp, like to just kind of dismiss the percentage points as, you know, 2%, 7%, I don't know, they're both low numbers, like, it makes a huge difference. And it's going to put a barrier to home home ownership for generations of people that is, could be theoretically insurmountable.
0: Yeah. And Fed Chairman Powell recently spoke to this dynamic last month, Uh, let's listen to what he had to say we've had a time of of a red-hot housing market all over the country where you know famously houses were selling to the first buyer at 10 percent above the the ask before even seeing the house that kind of thing so um, there was a big imbalance between supply and demand housing prices were going up at an unsustainably fast level so The deceleration in housing prices that we're seeing should help bring sort of prices more closely in line with rents and other housing market fundamentals, Um, and, you know, that's a good thing. For the longer term, what we need is supply and demand to get better aligned so that housing prices go up at a reasonable level, uh, at a reasonable pace, and that uh, people can afford houses again. And I think we—so we probably, in the housing market, have to go through a correction to get back to that place I'm confused with his point about supply and demand because as we've talked about many 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 times the problem of housing supply is not merely a question of uh, affordability it's a question of housing stock and nothing Powell has done from what I can tell is going to increase the supply of housing stock that's usually local policies you know often terrible local policies that you know make it really hard to build anything in this country and it's also you know when he says it it's going to make housing more affordable. I'm confused by that too, because I, you know, per year numbers, right? Mm-hmm. We, the price of a home matters so much less in these dynamics than yeah. the cost of your mortgage, unless you're paying cash. Yeah. And if you're going to pay cash, you're not the kind of person he's concerned Absolutely. about, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's also just such an unprecedented landscape here. Um, just work from home, increase the value of being a homeowner and the importance of the place that you live in a way that I think none of us could have anticipated during the pandemic. Um, between t- November 2019 and November 2021, prices for homes jumped 24%. And as much as 60% of that surge is can be attributed to this new kind of hybrid model and the importance of the home in a way that it really hasn't been. I mean, your office used to be your home 40 hours a week for most people that might be homeowners. Um, And that's expected to continue to a certain degree to inflate values just on that basis because 30% of work right now, even today, is still being done remotely. I think there's a lot of people that might be in that kind of laptop class bracket who are considering being homeowners that um, are in a situation where they could be hybrid, where, where the place that you live matters more than it potentially ever has before. So I obviously he's juggling with a, a situation that none of us could have expected. And, um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I, it's the, there's never a fun way to say, Oh, we're going to pump the brakes on our almost 0% interest rate kind of artificial inflation that we mm-hmm. did. And this is just the cycle that we find ourselves in consistently.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of a paradox because part of what the Fed is trying to do is decrease inflation, mm-hmm. right? And on paper, increasing interest rates lowers the cost of the price of that house, but it doesn't lower the cost of the house to people like you and me when we take out a mortgage. It actually increases the mm-hmm. cost when you increase it. <laughs> So in a weird way, it's making the good even more expensive. Uh, so it's kind of a paradox, and in the, in the regional differences here are pretty significant. The ten markets cooling the fastest are almost all at West Seattle, Las Vegas, San Jose, San Diego, Sacramento, Denver, Phoenix. So there, there seems to be something particularly problematic going out there. A lot of people are saying, "Well, how does this compare to the two thousand eight financial crisis?" At least from what we can tell, it's different, yeah. right? You know, first it seems that lenders are being more disciplined in who they're giving money out to. Uh, second is that the adjustable rates are way less popular than they were before. Uh, about 99% of outstanding mortgages have locked in rates at a lower mark uh, rate than the current market. And so, you know, really, these rates are really falling on people just buying mm-hmm. right now, whereas before, a lot of people were locked into these adjustable rates. So as they were going up, whether you bought your house a couple of years ago, or you bought it today, you were going to be affected. Most people aren't uh, facing those dynamics now, although people who are buying now, like me, really strongly consider the adjustable rate because you're like, all right, well, maybe in the future. I talked to my, you know, we 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 interviewed my real estate agent Aaron Mazur about this, and you know, he said to me, he said many times, and I'm hearing this from a lot of people. A lot of people are starting to consider adjustable rates now, and you're starting to see an uptick of the adjustable rates moving forward, which means if these rates hit like anything like the 80s, like 18% or something like they did in the 80s, people are going to get really wiped
1: yeah, out. Yeah, I think um – this is just going to become a bigger and bigger question of how people vote, how people feel about the economy more broadly. It's the number one issue for voters right now. 82% of Americans say that it's very important. And that's compared to 76%. And
0: the it is housing or uh,
1: the economy in general, the inflation, inflation, 76% say it's very important. And that's compared to 67% with crime, which is another day to day issue that most people are encountering in urban areas. But I mean, I think this is, how how we stick this landing? Yeah, I think everyone is becoming increasingly suspicious of the possibility here. But um, the yeah. housing market is certainly one one symptom of the fact that we're struggling as a result.
0: Yeah, and who knows? Um, one of my favorite thinkers on this, who we talked about way back in January when we were trying to paint a picture of what this year was going to look like, we we talked about this piece about uh, from Jeremy Grantham predicting what he called a super bubble. And he talked about how many asset classes, whether it's housing, equities, commodities, were all uh, heading for a major market correction. And he wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago, it was at the end of the summer, you know, when the, the stock market was like, starting to tick up a little bit over a period of time. And you saw a little bit of this with the housing market too. And he called it a bear market rally and said that, hey, like historically, these things happen a lot where like, and he- went all the way back to the Great Depression and looked at every recession and said, there's always a slight uptick where people start to get optimistic for a short period of time. And then he's like, what comes next is often the worst of it all. I hope he's wrong. (laughs) But that's what he said. We'll link to that paper. It's quite a ride. It's quite scary. Uh, But we have one more topic, Ricky. Let's talk about tipping.
1: Yeah, scary times mean that you might pinch some more pennies. And I think that right now we're all feeling like We might be um, having a bit of tip fatigue. I would say that there's an increase in the sensation that there's pressure tipping with iPads that um, cashiers flip around in in scenarios where you might never have tipped in the first place, like getting a latte or something like that. Um, there's increased standards where you see like the lowest possible option is twenty percent, and then it's twenty five and thirty. And so um, I think that the tipping world in general is kind of in crisis, and a TikToker. I think wrapped it up in the quickest speaking and most concise way I could come up with.
0: Not to sound like a total hater, but genuinely what the hell's going on with this whole iPad tipping thing? Like it's gotten so far to pain; it's almost laughable. Okay. The other day I ordered food. I ordered it online, went to the website, put in what I wanted, sent out the order, then got into my car to go pick it up. I get there. I give the girl my card to pay for the food. She puts it in whatever. And then all of a sudden she spins that iPad around. I get whiplash. And she's like, would you like to leave a tip? Girlfriend for what? What did you do? No, I'm actually going to flip this thing right back at you. I will be taking a tip. 20% thanks. And then once you're done, go grab me your shirt. I'm clocking in because at this point, I'm genuinely more of an employee of this establishment than you
1: are. And I would like to be compensated. There's also like like Uber used to say tipping is not expected. And now it's at the end of every trip. Um, There's cashiers and baristas who are in typically non-tipping scenarios that are now asking. I think it's kind of capitalizing on the fact that I, I think I'm one of many Americans who have no freaking clue when you're supposed to tip because all the rules are so convoluted. And like when I'm moving, I'm Googling, am I tipping my movers or like how how much? And I don't know what the standard is. And I think it's it's confusing. Um, And the U.S. and Canada are the only places where it's kind of um, really baked into the culture versus places like Japan, China and Korea find it rude so um, it's interesting, but I think that there's a decline in pandemic generosity here where we were all kind of throwing out a few extra bucks if we were fortunate enough to be able to do that. And now more yeah. and more Americans are, are feeling a little bit of fa- fatigue. Coffee shop tips are down from 17.2% in 2021 to 15.2% in February of this year. So
0: it's measurable. Well, Ricky, uh, our friend of the pod, David Ferrier in the Flightless Birds podcast had this, you know, extensive one hour history of tipping culture in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who don't want to listen to that full hour, give us the Cliff Notes version. Where did this tipping stuff come from? And why is the US so unique in our? robust tipping culture?
1: Well, it began in Europe, um, and there's a theory that it started in Tudor England, or just with people drinking and slipping a few bucks under the bar, um, and tip would mean to ensure promptitude. So you get quicker service, but then it became an American sort of tradition in the 1850s if you wanted to seem fancier and more aristocratic um, Mm -hmm. and shell out a few extra bucks. And it kind of went back and forth in a very convoluted scenario where it was a tradition in Europe. It was a tradition in America, back and forth and back and forth. But now it's essentially baked into some of our industries and namely in and waitressing and, and waiting in um, restaurants because you can bake in the expectation as an employer that you don't have to necessarily pay minimum wage um, because tips will compensate for it. And so now it's it's very much entrenched. And I think that these, these new standards, the pandemic donations, these iPads, even mobile payments that nudge you for tips. Um, one of the, one study found they increase uh, tipping by 38%. So wow. it's kind of a an ill-defined tradition that's been a mess from the start. It continues to be a mess. And I think we're all just trying to figure out, especially in tougher economic times, what is expected of us and what might be more pressure oriented.
0: Well, have you ever done a job that you know, m- you know, mostly relies on tips?
1: No, I've been I did retail growing up. Um, but that's not a tipping scenario.
0: Yeah, just like minimum wage. Yeah, I was a pizza delivery man in Staten Island. And you know, what's interesting about the economics of tipping is how good it is for the business. So like Jimmy Max pizzeria, mm-hmm. Staten Island, I was, you know, I used to deliver pizzas as did my brother. And my sister was a waitress there. And we all would make I don't know what it was like, Three dollars an hour or something, and then they like we would just make money off of tips, which basically means it's it's costless for the business. You know, yeah. we're delivering the pizzas, and they really don't have to pay us anything. And you know, it's, don't
1: they have to make up for it if you don't reach minimum wage in the end? Is that true?
0: Yeah, but I would say like you know those types of places back then. Do. I don't know what it's like. Yeah, but even then, if we had a bad night, it's not the kind of place where you're pulling you know jimmy mcbratney the owner of jimmy max aside and being like hey man i didn't hit my quota like he would just be like you
1: know,
0: go fuck yourself. But like the numbers here, yeah, like there's a federal tipped minimum wage, which I think is $2.13. And the federal minimum wage is much higher than that. It's over $7. Uh, You're supposed to give the $7.25 or whatever it is. And sometimes it varies by state where states have higher minimum wages. You're supposed to give Mm -hmm. the difference if you don't hit the, the actual minimum wage, right? Now, Whether people are doing this or not, I think is an open question. Like, so a lot of these things are off the books too. Like a lot of these tipping jobs off the books, sometimes immigrant labor, et cetera. So it's really tough. You know, I'm not sure where to draw the line. I feel icky- not tipping people when i'm prompted but it is starting to get out of hand i was at a gym the other day and they gave me the ipad to tip the trainer i'm like well i don't know what this person's making so like how am i supposed to make a a decision now if they're not paying the trainer then that's important information but if they are then i'm less likely to think about tipping them you know
1: yeah definitely i mean it 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 does feel weird, but I've been in scenarios just based on the saturation, especially in a place like New York, where you like someone flips an iPad no matter what you're checking out on, even if it's uh like like a two dollar pack of gum at a bodega, there's like, do you want a tip? One dollar, two dollars, three dollars. Yeah. And like there's a scenario where I'm like, I know for sure this is not expected of me and this is unnecessary. And like it just happens right. so often that I like wouldn't be able to afford to live in New York if I was as generous as these tipping prompts require me to be. Right. But I, I mean, I think that there's like, I think there's going to be a correction. I think the fact that that tipping is down a little bit right now demonstrates that, but I think it's also capitalizing on the fact that our generation is hyper aware of wanting to pay it forward of how difficult um, some of some of these jobs that require tipping can be i think there's definitely more awareness i've seen older older people in my family be a little more stingy and want to kind of whack people with bad tips if their service is not great so i don't know i think there's i think we all need to kind of figure out what the new um cultural pact is here but it seems like the jury's out.
0: There are 4% of Americans who just seem to not care at all, who don't tip at all. Actually, I won't out this person, but I have a family member who I caught recently not tipping. And I realized they had never basically tipped my entire life. And so I was horrified and had, had a tough conversation there. I think this mm-hmm. is in line with just like friction at the cash register general, like generally, like you go to CVS and it's like, hey, do you want a CVS premium plus card? Do you want to donate money to the Red Cross? Do you want to donate money to animal shelter? And I'm just like, all right, like I get it. Like I just need to get the hell out of (laughs) the store, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. It's one of those things that the culture is going to have to change because these businesses, every incentive to tee this up and I doubt there's just going to be like a mass uprising. So people are just, you know, books are going to be written about this, you know, financial advice columns are going to be done and people are just going to have to take matters into their own hands.
1: I think we should go back to the good old tip jars. They were charming. Yeah. And- they're not coercive. They're just there. You, you do it if you want to do it.
0: All right. Well, Ricky, I hope you feel better. We will be back on Thursday remote where I'll be upstate and hopefully you will be on the mend. Uh, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in. You could subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever. You can go to YouTube, hit that like button. Please give us that five-star review wherever you are. It's really important to us for our audience to say what they love about the program so others can come check us out. And we'll talk to you later this week.
1: I'm Ricky Schlott. The Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Editing and sound design by Monica Espitia and Joe Engelbrecht. Video editing by Ava Maldonado.